My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Hey, thanks for tuning into another episode of Transmissions. I don't want to take too much time away from you getting right into this week's talk. Our guest on the show is Nabil Ayers, author of My Life in the Sunshine, a book that explores the spiraling connections of family, from his relationship with his free jazz uncle who took him to see the Smiths, get ready for that story, uh, to the Baha'i faith he inherited from his mother. Uh, plus, you know, he unpacks his complicated relationship with his father, uh, famed jazz musician Roy Ayers, who he did not grow up knowing, and he traces his family roots even further back as the book goes along. It documents also his time in indie rock and punk bands, uh, and then his time working at and eventually owning record stores and working out and eventually running a bunch of record labels, including the Control Group and Beggars Group. Uh, It's a book that offers a deep and compelling look at a life spent furthering the pursuit of musical creativity. And it was really a lot of fun to sit down with Nabil and uh, have this this talk, which I tried to keep as loose and kind of hang-like as possible, which is a classic hangout episode, as Horton will sometimes text me. Uh, I think those are my favorite kind of episodes, so... uh, Here it is, uh, Nabil Ayers, you're tuned in to Transmissions. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I'll speak with you a little bit more on the other side. Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, my life in the sunshine was such an entertaining read, and it was really thoughtful and provoking. And your writing style—I mean, I'd read stuff that you you've written before, you know. But a book is its own thing. That's a little more writing than I yeah, had read from a lot you. More. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I found your writing style so uh, propulsive. It just like, it, once you start in on the book, it's just, it's really easy to just keep going. It, it was it was a really good thing to kind of like roll through in pretty concentrated chunks, but it didn't feel like concentrated chunks. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. That, that, I mean, it's weird. It's hard to relate. I've, I've had people say that and I, I love that. That makes me feel really good. And it's not, I don't know that I necessarily tried to, do that, but I'm really glad that that happened because I like books like that. And I think, I mean, the, the reason might be because I was, I really did try to, I did a lot of the writing before I was writing a book. I was just writing for myself and kind of trying sure. to sort of was writing a lot of short pieces and didn't for a while, didn't have the goal to write a book. I was just kind of writing with the idea that no one, this might not ever get in front of anyone. I might not try to get this published. It might not even be a short piece. I'm just like kind of writing to write and see what comes out. And so I felt really safe. And I remember telling myself, like, just write it as if you're like telling someone a story. Like I wasn't trying to be a fancy writer. I'm not a fancy writer. I didn't go to <laughs> fancy writing school. I went to college, but not for writing. So uh, so that I think, I think and hope that's probably why it comes across that way is I really just tried to sort of tell everything honestly as if I was telling a friend or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that comes across very directly, uh, and it, it is it does have a lot to do with that. The ease of, of the read had a lot to do with how conversational it felt and how it didn't feel. You know, it's like sometimes when people write something, I mean, I'm guilty, anybody who's ever written anything is guilty of... Yeah, even an email. <laughs> yeah, you, you're, you're, yeah, you're like, I'm gonna, okay, I gotta sit down and I gotta write this, and this has gotta really come across correct, and it's gotta be... 
exactly what I want to say, and I need to be sure that I'm saying some things that I'm not uh, explicitly saying. I need to under... And then you realize, like, I don't know. A lot of the best writing is when somebody just says, this is this is what I'm saying. Here it right, is. Right. I'm going to write yeah. about some stuff that is... You know, I, I was curious. So I, one of the first questions I wrote down was, did the book end up being something... Did the book end up being what you thought it would be when you started it? But it sounds like you weren't even necessarily set on it being a book but once that right, right. once that took shape and once you realized that that was what you were doing i mean did it did it go on a journey did you end up someplace different than you expected yeah definitely i mean the, the sort of quick version of how it all came together i was i was writing because i just think i was in my 40s and felt like i had a lot of stories and my mother and my grandmother who i know very well are both big story writers and storytellers. My mom emailed me three different emails today with just like observations and stories. <laughs> so I think it just sort of runs. There's something about us like wanting to catalog our memories. And so I really just sort of suddenly felt this urge to do that and just started doing it for fun and was writing about the bands I used to play in and the record store I used to own and like mostly the fun stuff. And when we sold Sonic Boom, the store I owned in Seattle in 2016, my wife girlfriend then but now wife said to me you know this is like this, this is really fun you're writing about your record store and your bands but what you should write about is your father and your race because that's what you're interested in and that's what people will be more interested in and and that kind of hit me in the gut because i knew she was right and that sounded scarier and riskier and all those things and i don't have a relationship with my father and all this stuff so so I just decided to start writing about it with definitely with no plan of publishing anything. I was like, I don't know how to do that, but I can do it safely on my own and no one may ever see it. So that's how it started. And then eventually there were kind of enough stories and enough things that I thought like, wow, I wonder if I could turn this into a book. And at that point, I got pretty far along just on my own, again, with no one knowing I was doing this, no pressure on me whatsoever, and got to a point where... I think someone told me, like, if you want it to be a book, you have to get an agent to get a publish, all these things. And what you need for any of those things is an outline. Right. And the outline is really hard. It's no fun. It's it's harder than the book. Someone told me this. I was like, whatever, really? And I tried to do it. And it was so hard to, like, put the whole thing in a couple of pages. But what it did was it forced me to figure out an ending, which I hadn't even thought about. Yeah. And, and some of the stuff that's in that outline from that day is in the actual ending of the book, which is kind of wild. But but, um, but it did change. And a lot of the reason it changed is because, I mean, this whole thing took like three or four years. There was a lot happening during that time. So whatever I started writing, by the, by the end, I had discovered people and family. And I mean, really, a lot had happened in real time that that forced it to change to the point where i was like we got to finish this because it's never going to end <laughs> yeah i know you could still be writing it you yeah. could be writing it right now yeah right yeah i mean and also if it was written over the last three or four years i suppose you probably had to contend with some oh, oh, like you know it's it's a tricky it's a tricky thing that you do in this book um because you you're kind of on a tightrope in in the stories that you're telling um you're writing about a, a lot of things, you know, seemingly disparate things. And and, and the connecting right. thread, of course, is, is you. And so I was struck by how deeply vulnerable and open the very basis of the book would require you to be, telling the story of, you know, the... The circumstances of your of your being conceived alone yeah, right. are, <laughs> you know, I I, I want to be like, I just want to commend you for that because that alone would, would be a thing that like I kind of found myself as anybody who reads a book does, you know, kind of like thinking like, well, what if I was, what if I was put in this position and I need to, right. to reveal some of this stuff and I I just thought about how how tough some of it would be. You're you know, the courage required to open up about how, you know, your mom wanted to have a baby uh, and and your your father, uh, Roy, was th he was there to, you know, to be that part of it. And then but she also said she wanted to raise you on her own. And right. As I was sorting through just sort of all that stuff. I mean, I just thought that the, the complicated story that you were in the process of writing you just you thread it through with so much humanity and so much uh, openness and so much humor. It was not 
that's the other thing. I kind of thought, well, this is going to be kind of like a heavy book. And it, it has <laughs> moments of being heavy, you know? Yeah. I mean, when you're writing about uh, race in America and slave owning ancestors, right. all this these stuff. people in 1824 <laughs> who had <There's>, bite marks <laughs> on their ankles from dogs chasing them. It's crazy. Yeah, totally. There, there's no way that that's not going to be a, kind of a fraught story to tell. But but your your grace and good humor just like comes through in this book and it doesn't end up it, it ended up almost feeling like kind of like a personal a personal adventure or something. <laughs> in, 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 and that is what it feels like. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's interesting. The mom story and that comes up a lot. And that weirdly. I mean, absolutely, to your point, uh, it was definitely hard to write a lot of this stuff and very personal. And I'm not I'm not a super open, revealing person about a lot of this stuff. And largely because it's like, it's just hard to talk about. And I often don't feel like I owe anyone the sort of details that it takes. I mean, the, the very short story, as you got into, is my, when my mother was 20, she met Roy Ayers, jazz musician, thought, this is the person I want to have a kid with. I don't need to marry him. I don't need to be with him. I want to be a young single mother. Hung out with him a couple times, asked him, said, will you be the father of my child? You don't have to be part of our lives. He said yes. Everyone kept their end of the deal. But I've always known that story. So <clears throat> he was always talked about, like, definitely not negatively, if anything, positively. I think she wanted me to know that part of me was this great guy and what she saw in him and why she did this. So it was never like, oh, your deadbeat father is not around, like nothing, zero of that for my entire life. It's really positive. And, and so as much as it's like crazy for me to tell that story, I've watched my mother tell it a thousand times and she did it. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't have any choice and that's a whole another issue that people like to get into, but <laughs> I lived it. She did an incredible job. And so for me to tell it is like, yeah, I'm proud to tell it because it was really her doing it. She did the hard work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's actually, I think what I, you know, what maybe what resonated most with me in the book was that there is this sense of, um, there's in a sense, there's a sense of acceptance and a kind of like, life is a is a complicated thing no matter what you really i mean yeah. no matter no matter what, what the circumstances of your your situation is life is complicated and right. and i do think that like y you did such a great job of describing some of the things you sort of inherited really from both of your parents the the best the best things the mm -hmm. the things that make you who you are and and you have lived a remarkable life as well. I mean, and accomplished so much. So it's like, I mean, <laughs> it sounds so it sounds so on the nose or or cheesy to say like it all worked out, <laughs> but it, but in a lot <laughs> of ways, is sort of, it is. It did. I mean, that is sort of how I ended it. I mean, not yeah, absolutely, not quite that simply, but like in a way. I mean, a lot of it is like, as you say, life's super complicated. Mine is or was really complicated but it didn't feel that way like that's what's so weird and i think i learned this a lot while i was writing it during those years but like you know on paper it sounds terrible my mother was 20 when she met my father had no money no plan hadn't gone to college was on welfare he's black she's white and a few years later i'm the you know the result the young half black half white child of a single mother who's young and has no money and that's like that's a terrible situation. That's like, you know, what most Americans assume, like that's how a kid ends up in jail or doing terrible things. And, and it never felt like that. We were always around. I mean, my mom was really careful to always make sure we lived in really safe, sort of nurturing, diverse environments. And so for the first 10 years of my life, like there's nothing weird about my situation. I had plenty of friends who were biracial or different races or didn't have fathers. Like I was really totally a normal kid. And, uh, and so as, as like crazy and complicated as that situation might sound, there were kids with, you know, brothers and sisters and two parents living in the suburbs who had way worse situations than mine. My situation was great. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I love that you, you wrote so beautifully about your childhood and really evocatively about this time when, as you already sort of alluded, like, you know, there wasn't a lot of money. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, that kind of, uh, rich upbringing. But then right. when you write about, how some of the first music you remember hearing was like John Coltrane. It's like, I mean, that's a, 
we talk about like concepts of of, of privilege, right? And it's like right. in a, in a weird way, like yeah, that's a pretty extraordinary environment to grow up in, and and, and with your uncle Alan, who was yeah you know, hipping you to things that, I mean, I, I needed, I was, I was well into my, my twenties before I was ready for some of the stuff right. you heard as a, as a actual I know, that's toddler. That's what's so funny is like, yeah, before I got into whatever, <laughs> any kind of pop or rock music, whatever you yeah. want to call it, before I discovered Kiss or MTV, right? my uncle, who's a jazz saxophone player, and this is like in New York in the seventies, it's, it's funny because it even goes beyond it's not like he was exposing me to it. It's not like it was like, hey, kid, come here. I'm going to play you some music. It was just there yeah. always. He yeah. was playing all day. He was practicing. The people who lived in this building on Canal Street were all musicians. And it's like, that's seriously just, I was surrounded by music every second of my life without trying. And I, that's how I got into playing drums and how I got into everything was just because it was always there. And and two two years old when he gave you your first drum set. Is that right? Yeah. I, knew, like, I wrote down just above toddler age and then as i was uh getting ready for this one i listened to the to the interview you did on how long gone and and, oh, yeah. and then got a little got a little uh reference we'll probably talk about kid and play just a little less in this interview because uh, you guys covered that one pretty well that was fun yeah. but uh but no like thinking about being two years old and 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 playing drums i mean when you when you think back um Obviously, you're in this milieu, and your uncle is ex- exposing you just by virtue of of being immersed in this world himself. Yeah. Do I mean? Do you remember what what was the first music that really that really felt like your own uh, in terms of establishing your own musical identity? I mean, it ha- it's a, cheapens everything we've just talked about, but it has to be Kiss. Well, I <laughs> add, was, <laughs> another yeah. note. Another note on this. Another yeah, note John on John <laughs> Coltrane, whatever. Let's talk about Kiss, the real stuff. <laughs> well, so another note I wrote down was that there was way more Kiss conversation than I expected in this yeah. book. But but I <laughs> I find Kiss to be a deeply fascinating band. I wonder if you could tell me what it was that drew you to them as a kid, and then also now as an adult, especially somebody who has made a uh, his living in the music industry. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Kiss as an idea n- now? And then what was it that drew you to them as a kid? It's a two-parter for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, as a kid, it was pretty obvious. And, that, you know, those guys knew what they were doing. They were marketing geniuses. And I was five in 1977 when they were arguably at their peak. They were huge. It was the makeup. It's flames and fire and all that stuff. And that was just like what kids were talking about in school. I don't think I'd actually heard them. I think I probably just like saw a t-shirt or it was like, you know, they were, it was like a comic book. I just like, and I just had the feeling like, well, I want to be into that band. Yeah. And, I, and then I went to the UMass in this is Amherst, Massachusetts, went to the UMass record store with my mother. And I remember seeing it on the shelf, Destroyer, and pull, pulling it off the shelf and buying that. That was the first record, whatever, it wasn't my money, but you know, first record I chose, first yeah. record I bought. And just like played it to death. And we had lots of records at home. So I, you know, knew how to use the turntable and do everything. And but suddenly there was this Kiss record and I would like read it like crazy and try to play along on the drums and just got so into it. But but was I think there was this interesting thing. And I talk about this in the book where as a kid with a black father and a white mother, you know, I was never made fun of, at least in those years. Like I fit right in, like I said, but I really knew I wanted to play in a band and I would look at our Beatles records and see these really pale guys with straight brown hair and I'd be like, well, that's that's not me. I yeah. can't be in that band. And I would look at a Stevie Wonder record and even not identify with him. His afro was like really round and well-kept and skin was darker. And I was like a real hippie kid with like, you know, it looked like <laughs> someone cut my hair in their sleep <laughs> like I did it myself. It was like a real messy kid Line up, not necessarily Which I would kill for now if I could have that back, but it doesn't work that way. So so weirdly, and I knew that Kiss were white guys. I mean, my you could see their hands and whatever, and my mother <laughs> loved the fact that Paul and Jean were Jewish and always liked, you know, they're Jewish from New York. That made her very proud as a Jewish woman. Right. Um, but it wasn't, so it wasn't, but there's something about like, but they're dressed up and I can, I, you know, I can get this Halloween costume. I can put makeup on. That's actually weirdly the band I can connect to and that I could maybe be in because it's possible to look like them. And I think that identity thing, like, kind of no matter what your age is such a huge thing for like, whatever it is you want to do, you need to be able to see yourself in somebody somewhere, like someone is doing it. And yeah. I think, I think that's really what connected me with them more than anything was like, doesn't matter what you look like you can make yourself look like something that you want to be 
Right. Yeah. That idea then, of self-invention. Yeah. yeah. And then as I got older, I mean, I, d- I went through so many phases. I mean, I, I was done with Kiss by the time I was like nine, by the time their <laughs> dynasty, the kind of disco record, even that I rejected, I think. They then, shook you loose with that one. Yeah. 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 And of course, in high school, I got into whatever cooler music and punk and indie and the college and everything. But but then it started to become a nostalgic thing, and then they reunited. And my mom took me to see them at Madison Square Garden when I was seven, which was crazy to see a show like that at seven years old after being exposed to all this jazz and suddenly have you know the flames and all the all that crazy shit happening. Yeah. But the, the super fun full circle was this end of the world tour that they've been on for like five years or something. I uh, I took my mom to see them at Madison Square Garden like four or five years ago, and it was like. It was really sort of affirming because it was it looked like tons of the same thing. It was a yeah. lot of older parents and their kids my age like going back to this thing they'd done and it was really really cool and really fun. That's awesome. On the topic of the uh, the uh, the <laughs> the ambiguity of of Kiss, let's put it that way, you know, the rock and <laughs> yeah. roll ambiguity. Have you ever seen Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park? yeah i mean not in a long time but i mean i don't i I, the it escapes me which member it is but there is a scene where there's an extra or a stunt uh, there's a stunt double for one of the guys who is clearly a black guy Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know there's like a lot of i've read i've read a couple of the kiss books and they talk about this in there yeah yeah yeah, which is just i mean i just had to bring it up because i was like this might be the one could be anyone (laughs) this might be the one time this is an actual sort of pertinent thing to bring up uh so wild yeah but no that's so funny to me they are a fascinating group and when i think about the music of that era you know whatever be it you know bowie or or uh New York Dolls or, or anything like that. I mean, there really is sort of like a, or for that matter, uh, Funkadelic, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of this sort of like, it's it's just so cool that in that moment, a rock band wasn't just four guys with guitars. There was this opportunity to create this sort of super heroic or, or science fiction totally. landscape. And then it's like, yeah, our band is, our band is are, is these records and and these songs, you know, mm-hmm. but it's also this whole sort of idea that you get to go experience. So yeah, that's that's really that's a, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and everyone you just mentioned is yeah, they're all these like larger than life figures that created these this huge world, you know, no, bigger than just their band. Yeah, yeah. Abso- absolutely, absolutely, and and uh, and so that that I mean that's that's an awesome time to kind of get into to music and have like yeah. this like these primal rock and roll experiences with that. There's another yeah, show sure. you talk about going to when you were a little older. You talk about going to see the Smiths, and it's like a whole back and <laughs> forth, where yeah. and so that was your uncle had taken you and bought and tickets from i think bleaker bob the yeah, legendary right, another record store story for you yeah. another, another record store store story we'll get in we have more on the way i promise uh <laughs> um but that that you i i was really moved by by i mean the the story of i don't want to really i don't really want to spoil it for the reader like exactly what's going on but it's kind of a it's kind of a harried situation in in which it, it wasn't looking like you were going to make it into that concert. Yeah, uh. we weren't going to get in. This is the Meet is Murder tour <laughs> at the Beacon Theater in New York in like 1985. I mean, really a time to right. be there. <laughs> right, right. And it doesn't look and it didn't look like it was going to happen, but but thankfully yeah. it does and you got to experience that. What did what did this what did the Smiths mean to you? Because you know, when I think of bands some of my favorite artists, I'll go through phases where I get uh, sick of them or I don't necessarily mm-hmm. it's like I, I, Springsteen's one of my favorites and it's like I haven't put on a Springsteen record in a while not since that last really good live thing came out on vinyl and it's not because I'm like done with Springsteen it's just that you go through these phases up and downs mm-hmm. with people yeah, yeah. the Smiths though are one of those bands where it's like anytime I hear the Smiths under really any circumstance I'm kind of like fuck this is this is so arresting and grabbing i never really get sick of hearing yeah the they're Smiths. really to me sort of weird unique band and i think i remember thinking at the time back then i mean i would have been in junior high school then and that was a time when i was like i, I was tied i lived in salt lake city 
was MTV, it was the radio, whatever. And it was like, you were either new wave or you were metal and you were not both. And so it was right. like, whatever, Motley Crue and Ozzy and New Order and The Cure. And I liked all of it. Yeah. And I didn't like the lines and I went to all the shows and I went with different kids to different shows and, and didn't really matter to me. I just liked the bands that I liked. And the Smiths, strangely for me, I remember thinking, like, I don't actually understand why I like this band so much. This doesn't seem like a band I should like. It's not hard enough. Even the New Wave bands I liked, I thought I thought Depeche Mode was kind of heavy at the time. And Depeche and Mode is kind of heavy, yeah, yeah, for sure. So so I, I always thought a lot about why I liked them. I never figured it out, but I, you know, the, but there was something deeper and heavier i've never been a big lyrics person so that it wasn't that for me which i know of course for tons of people that's what the smiths are but it, it is the mar morrissey thing i've never been into either of them separately nearly as much as i am that handful of albums and either i mean really for me it was that singles compilation louder than bombs which in america was like this i thought you know incredible 22 song album which yeah. i didn't realize was like oh these are like a ton of different singles <laughs> that's how they did this but i mean it just blew me away. Some of those songs were so, so short and to the point and just like gripping and intense and yeah. scary. They made me feel kind of bad. Yes. Which I love <laughs> in music. Yeah, every everything you're describing, I, I, I absolutely, it resonates with me. Because I know what you mean. There is like a, and, and their short songs somehow feel like epics nonetheless. Like they managed yeah. to fit so much in. I remember, um, um, working at a at a record store and being I don't know whatever twenty twenty two or something like that, and uh, a just a little bit older than me a couple came up and and maybe they were thirty or something and I was like you know oh these are cool cool older folks or whatever <laughs> yeah. anyway uh, <laughs> and I remember they were they were buying like a Morrissey thing and I remember saying like I was like hey is this a good one is this a good solo record and they were like yeah this is this is one of his best you got to get it or whatever and I was like yeah I just can't get into the Morrissey solo stuff the way I get into the Smiths. And uh, she just like tore me a new one. It was a really interesting <laughs> moment, right? She was like, what are you, t I hate, I get so sick of people saying that, the Smiths fans, blah, 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 blah. This one's just as good as anything. And and I was just like, yeah, but I mean, does Johnny Marr play guitar on this one? And she was right. like, well, no, of course not. And I was like, I don't know. I think I might have a point here, you know? I know what you mean, <laughs> the, though. The argumentative yeah. <laughs> record store clerk, I love Yeah, it. exactly, exactly. And this was really in the days, I, I remember my manager saying like, Hey, you know how like movies like High Fidelity and and Empire Records are like <laughs> these cool things that everybody loves and just like working in a record store is like that? He's like, it's not like that, okay? If you do that, you're fired, okay? Like I don't want <laughs> but you. But it to is. Be... It totally was. It could. We couldn't help it. We couldn't help it. Um, yeah. When you talked about getting hired at at Easy Street, that yeah, that was Seattle. another part that was really just so because. Well, and so your I think your your manager Matt Matt was it Matt Vaughn? Yeah, he's, who, he still owns the store. He was the owner then. Yeah, Matt Vaughn, one of the one of the lifers in the independent record store biz and East yep. Easy Street, such a such a legendary institution. But he's like he told you like we're not a cool record store. We sell everything from Metallica to Roy Ayers. What was yeah. that? Well, it must have been nuts to hear that. That was crazy because that's when I was I would have been like whatever, 22, just out of college and, you know, went to college outside of Seattle, moved to Seattle like everyone and was just like playing in a band and wanted a record store job, like didn't want a real job. And uh, and I'd got, you know, my dad had never been that much of a presence. Like when I was young and we lived in New York, he was around, we had run into him, I'd seen him. But then I moved to Salt Lake City with my mom for her job and we lived there sixth grade through high school. So like yeah, Salt Lake City in the 80s, Roy Ayers didn't exist. No one knew who he was. No one asked me about him. No, we didn't hear his songs. Like in my head, it was like, just didn't exist. Yeah. And then I went to college and like he'd pop up more because there were cooler people in college radio and everything. But then I go to this job interview at a record store and it was the first time ever it had come up like that. And Matt uses my dad as an example of like how deep the record store is and how it's more than just, you know, whatever. Soundgarden probably at the time. Right, and, uh, right, right. And I remember, I didn't have much time to react, but I do remember what I felt like. And I think, because usually if someone mentioned my father, it was like, Ugh, I have to explain the whole thing with my mom or I have to not explain it and feel bad for not. Like, those are all the things I would go through. But in that situation, I was like, oh, weird. This might help me. 
And that was definitely the first time I'd ever felt like that. And I just said, yeah, Roy's my father. And Matt was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) This weird college kid I'm interviewing for an $8 an hour record store job is telling me this. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And, and he hired me. I think I would have gotten hired anyway, but I think it, it definitely helped. <laughs> well, you, you kind of go on to talk about his, his love for you, which seems very uh, which seems very deep. And so, yeah, it seems like you probably would have got would have got hired one way or the other. But <laughs> I think about, though, how the record store I worked in, it's, uh, it was called Zia Records. And, and oh, it, Arizona? Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm, I, that's where I'm at. I am. Yeah, oh, I live cool. in Phoenix, yeah. Um, but I... I had uh, I had tried to get a job at, at at another store in town called Stinkweeds, which was a little bit more like the indie. I know Kimber. You know Kimber. Ex- well, I mean, <laughs> hey, I, Kimber, what's up? I knew you would. I knew you would. I went in and I asked her like for an application. It's when they still had a Tempe location. I lived in Tempe, and mm-hmm. she was like, um, "Yeah, we don't really. I mean, I don't really have any open positions. I think like two people worked for her, and I think maybe two people work for her now. I don't. It's it's right, it's a very right. small crew, you know." And probably the same two people for that matter. Um, <laughs> but she was like, yeah, go over to Zia and see if they'll have an application for you. And, and and I already knew Zia even better than I knew Stinkweed. So I was I was psyched. But when I think back on it and I reflect, you know, I think of those record store days as sort of like college for me. That's where I really mm-hmm. learned stuff. And I realized that if I had worked in the more maybe indie shop or whatever, I'm sure I would have got turned on to so much cool stuff and and all that, but working in the more uh, expansive uh, store, to me, I just I I feel so fortunate about that, and I wondered if it felt similar to you because I was exposed to it was kind of like it was like an immersion in in everything. There were like metalheads playing cool metal stuff. Yeah, I got that's so fun. They're like, hey, you heard Boris, you know, or whatever, and you're like, oh, cool, yeah. Anyway. That's what Easy Street was like for me. I mean, Easy St- I've never been to those either Zia or Stinkweeds actually, but uh, but Easy Street's like a big indie store, but not a, you know not it wasn't Tower Records, it wasn't huge, right? Um, but it wasn't teeny. And and Matt, who owned the store, definitely had great taste. I think I feel like his son is named after John Coltrane. Um, I might be making that up. <laughs> it's cool. But we allow we allow that reference, we allow you know, that here of, on the podcast. Lots of jazz, of course. It was like actually the grunge epicenter. It was wild. I mean, Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder shopped there when I worked there, which is just so funny. They're the biggest rock stars in the world. But um, but it was like yeah, I, the the sort of college or whatever school uh, analogy makes so much sense because I was certainly the youngest person working there when I started, and the, the two people there, well, more than that, four or five people were all like you know, I'd say. 28 to 32 which felt so much older when you're 22 and so they would be like have you heard this and play a nick cave record or have you heard this and play a whatever you know like that's how i got into like i mean henry threadgill and like i'm trying to think what else like mark rabot those amazing that cubano's record like you know really interesting stuff and then sometimes you just grab stuff from the used bin because it looks cool but it is like yeah it was this incredible music education for you know whatever eight hours a day you get to hear 12 records or whatever that works out to and that was such a really great part of having a record store and then later owning one it was fun at first when it was just me and my partner and we chose everything but when the store grew and we weren't working at the counter as much i liked that more because it was all the younger people that we hired choosing stuff and i would just sit up there and be like what's this what's this And and i like the education continued in this almost reverse way which was really cool Hey Transmissions listeners, are you a musical artist or in a band and you're just not sure how to get started sharing your music with the world? I want to tell you about DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun, and uh, here's the important part, it makes it easy. With unlimited uploads and artists like yourself keeping 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. DistroKid has just launched a new iPhone app, which allows you to upload your tunes, earn royalties, check your streaming stats, and add lyrics, credits, and metadata. Everything you need to do to get your music out there and resonating with listeners around the world. Head over to 
distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard to get started now. Transmissions listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year's membership. That's distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard. Head over to DistroKid and get your sounds shared with your listeners. That's so cool. And I mean, obviously, you've continued on and, you know, worked with labels, your own, uh, you know, uh, obviously working with beggars and just this massive thing. I mean, but I think that like, I think that maybe like kind of knowing what to listen for beyond the confines of genre or or maybe like the sonic um immediate like kind of the surface level stuff i think when you're in an environment like that and you're listening all the time multiple things happen i mean did you have it happen where sometimes you just tune it out completely and you're not hearing anything that's i mean that's that's what always strikes me (laughs) is people would be like oh man it's so great you get to listen to music all day and i'd be like yeah i I guess that's true (laughs) sometimes i forget it's on in a weird way that's what and i I live in new york now so i don't have a car but when i lived in seattle i had a car and kind of similar to me because what i loved i would listen to music all the time while i was driving but i wouldn't like i wasn't like seriously listening right and same in the store, but what was really fun is when suddenly something grabs you and you're Ex- like, whoa, what's happening? What are we listening to? And it's a weird way to figure out like what gets through to your brain. I totally remember sitting at Sonic Boom when somebody played the promo of the first MIA record and like and felt like the whole store stopped at the same time and was like, what, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> like just unanimously everyone. Yeah, you know? I know exactly yeah. what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. I remember getting off Zio one day and cruising over to the, to the liquor store right across the street uh, called Tops. <laughs> That's convenient. <laughs> yeah, I know. These, these were good times. You guys do trades. The, there was, a, there was another there. record store and a liquor store right across the street. It was all really good. But I remember walking in. It's funny. And hearing a TV on the radio return to Cookie Mountain in the oh, li- yeah. in the liquor store, and just kind of walking in, and it was before the record had come out, but uh, it had leaked. I mean, <laughs> and 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 they were playing it, and they were like, and I was just, I just walked in, and I was going to do my thing, and then I was like, "Hey, w- what is this?" And the guy's like, "Oh, it's the new TV on the radio," and I was like, "Holy crap!" And I just these, I mean, we're talking. We're talking about the halcyon days of the early 2000s or whatever. It's not like it's yeah, yeah. It, it 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 doesn't feel long ago, but it's longer ago than it than it feels like for sure. Mm-hmm. And I just remember wandering around the store just lingering cuz I didn't I didn't have that CD, you know? That was so the I was only like way to hear it. Well, I yeah, guess I'm just gonna, I'm just going to gonna stay and listen to it. So I, I kind of <laughs> totally. know what you mean. Yeah. You you talked about how you and Jason Hughes opened up Sonic Boom and you write uh, really movingly about in-store performances that you hosted, and oh, you man. know you had Saul Williams and uh, jo- Joanna Newsom. You said at one point. I mean, yeah, that was crazy. That was on the first album, and she was you know people knew who she was, but it, that I don't think that was like packed. I think you know people came, but she brought her harp and played, and it was magical. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I mean, when you look back, do you do, do you do you have a favorite? in store from from that time uh and and do you have any that stick out in your mind as real debacles perhaps <laughs> i mean that that joanna one was definitely one of my favorites that was incredible the mia one it was our first ever in store in america right at the beginning of the first american tour and jason and i were both out of town at a record store convention and we were just like talking to our staff on the phone and they're like it's crazy there's people standing on signs across the street trying to see in the store like the beatles or wow something. but the, weirdly one of my favorites i do write about in the book this woman hillary hahn who's a classical violinist someone called on her behalf and they were like hey hillary is spending a bunch of time in seattle she was like young and cool at the time not that she's not cool now but i mean she was like i think she was like 19 and had like played on a trail of dead record like had some like footprint in the sort of whatever our world but we didn't know who she was and um and this person was like she she loves sonic boom she shops in the store and her album's coming out and we're like we don't really like do i don't we don't sell classical music i don't know what to do like this sounds cool but what and the woman was like just like look her up and trust me people are gonna come it's gonna be great and so we're like fuck it let's do it this seems great people started calling like they never had people who'd never been to the store how do you get there how do i buy tickets all this crazy shit and we're like what is this what are we doing and so we ordered tons and tons of cds and uh and i i don't know 200 people showed up and it was all sort of 
older people, old, meaning old, like, you know, whatever, 50s, 60s, 70s, classical musical, yeah. music audience who would have much rather bought an expensive ticket and sat down than be, like, in a hot, packed record yeah. store. <laughs> and she showed up late, and she was so sweet. She was great, but for whatever reason, she got there late, and she's like, great, I just need to warm up. And we're like, great, so we'll tell people you'll be on in, like, five. She's like, no, it's 45 minutes. Oh. <laughs> like, oh, right, because it's, like, a real classical musician. So yeah. she goes in the bathroom, and she's warming up, and we're kind of trying to tell people what's going on. It's getting really uncomfortable and hot. And this old, very old woman just drops faints Ugh. on the ground. And we're like, oh, shit, what do we do? Like, we have just call 911. Like, what else can we do? Like, <laughs> we have to. So yeah. the fire truck comes really quickly. And luckily, it, I just remember thinking we were so lucky. And she was fine. But, um, but the cops, everyone came. And they were all really cool. And they were like, what's going on here? And we were like, oh, this famous classical violinist is about to give a recital. You know, we're trying to make it sound good. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember thinking, like, there are so many other end stores where if they'd walked in and seen the obvious, like, over legal capacity if it had been a bunch of tattooed people or maybe not all white people or whatever <laughs> it would not have been good but like we were so lucky that they were just like okay cool and they took the woman away and she played and it was and i think i mean i think we sold every cd we sold like hundreds of cds it was wild don't have to do any returns on that you don't have to box <laughs> no. that stuff back up and send it that's awesome yeah, it's so strange you also talk about how it's a really interesting thing um that you with with your late with your label you were able to put records out on vinyl at a time <laughs> yeah. major major label stuff big big artists uh -huh. you know from like kings of leon and that was uh, so weird you were yeah. able to like to tap into this thing because the because the lab, the majors just basically thought vinyl was a was a niche thing yeah for a long time i mean i remember when at sonic boom when the majors would put out you know whatever hot new indie band records they would sometimes press vinyl and give it away as like a value add they called it like a free bonus gift with the cd yeah like that's how yeah. useless vinyl was <laughs> to the majors at the time it was crazy so so yeah I, I still do my own small label called the control group and there was a point in time when i think you know i knew a lot of the label reps because i owned a record store and one from Ireland who said, you know, we have this new band called The Killers. They really want us to put the record out on vinyl. We're not going to do it. Would you consider doing it on your label? You know, we know you, you put out vinyl. And I, I remember at the time thinking, like, I don't know if anyone's going to buy this record on vinyl when it comes out, so I will do it. And I'll press a thousand copies, but will like could Island buy a couple hundred of them from me just so that I don't totally lose my shirt if they don't sell? And of course, it did really, really, really well. Yeah, and that just led to more like then Kings of Leon, same thing with them, and then PJ Harvey. Like it was why I got to put out incredible records, and those are all you know all those deals are done, and I don't have them anymore. But uh, it was so wild to think that like the people who whose job it was to put out those records didn't want to do that part of it and so they got me <laughs> too <laughs> did you i mean did you did you feel like i mean obviously we're talking uh, around the same time i was talking kind of mid mid 2000s early 2000s yeah. mid 2000s did you feel like you had uh um i mean did you have the inkling that like this w was uh already a growing um a format that people were i mean because yeah, it was it was already a thing. I mean, even the, uh, when we opened Sonic Boom in 1998, it was a thing. I mean, I don't know. Right. Uh, like, Modest Mouse, The Lonesome Crowded West came out around then. I mean, uh, we definitely sold hundreds of copies of that album on vinyl. Death Cab for Cutie's first album. Like, those indie records, all that Kill Rockstar stuff, all the Sub Pop stuff, all Up Records, K, all those labels, Touch and Go. I mean, every one of those records has always come out on LP. And yeah. we were selling tons of them. Then we were also selling CDs, still more CDs, but yes. like, yeah, 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 it never felt new. And I don't remember, I mean, and it always some of them were cheap, but like when OK Computer was only available as an import, and I remember we sold it for $33, which in whatever year, what was that, 2000 or something? That yeah. was a lot for a double LP. And whenever we got, we'd get five from some importer and they'd go that day, like it wasn't, it's. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's obviously bigger than ever, but it's not new. <laughs> no, it's 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 cr it's crazy because I mean I, I I remember like feeling like I had a little bit of a front row seat for some of that resurgence. Like I remember yeah. like you know like the store brought in like five Wilco records or something once, and I remember being like, 
whoa, we ordered five of this, you know, like, you know, <laughs> like, like cool, that was one, one for each clerk, one, and one for each customer. clerk. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And we would have, and we would have those customers who would be like, I know you guys all buy this, you know, it's <laughs> totally. like, yeah, that's true. But it's interesting because I think because people, people dismissed the format. Right. And, and I think that, that it was, it's cool. One, one thing I'm struck by in your um, book is how often you're able to just sort of see the need for something and and just jump jump on it. You know what I mean? Like you mm. had that opportunity, you were able to to get in there, and I I just think it's a pretty interesting situation for sure. Thanks. Yeah, I mean that was really fun. I wish I could still do that, but <laughs> short lived thing. Well, yeah. speaking of labels, though, you're on the topic of your uncle, who we touched on early earlier. Mm-hmm. He, you know, has been a lifelong musician and he's worked yeah. on the jazz scene and he's worked as a session guy and not that long ago was did you did you start Valley of Search was that in 2020 is that was that the first or was it a little 2018, early 2018 I think it was so, okay. that whole story is so crazy and so like to me such a lesson of like just do shit that you like and don't worry about anything else, which is, of course, easy to say if you have a job, which I do, and that makes it easier <laughs> to do things like that. But like, but I mean, I, I you know, I'd put out tons of records and I'd on the control group, my label, and like the biggest ones are like all those ones we just talked about on vinyl, but also like El Pera Del Mar and Licky Lee and some stuff that did really well, but like definitely never anything that like really broke through. And in my head, it was always like, but that's going to happen. That's possible. And it is possible, but it never happened. And that's fine. But, uh, but I was always sort of competing in that indie space, if that makes sense, trying to put out like the next Joanna Newsom record or the next whatever. And yeah. then, yeah. And then I think I real. I mean, my uncle made this record in 1975 called Valley of Search and I'd always known it and I had a copy but it was just to me like the super obscure record that no one knew about or cared about. And that was that. And somehow, I think he, he was in New York, he played with some friends, and I posted something on Facebook, and I got a bunch of comments that were like, whoa, you're like you're connected to this, or that's your uncle, that record, and then I started looking, and it's like, oh, weird, this is a $100 Discogs record, and there's a terrible YouTube rip that has 10,000 plays, like, that's crazy, who, who are these people that are into this? And so I talked to my uncle about reissuing it, so we did, and I, I called the label Valley of Search, because I was like, this is different, this isn't my indie rock thing, so let's change it. And my plan was like, no one's really going to care about this. We're going to sell a few copies. It's for a very small group of people. I can't afford to like hire a publicist or do any serious promotion. I'm just going to sort of put it out and I'll try to do some press just because I can kind of tell the story. And I was literally there when he made the record. And There's a song named after me. So like I can really kind of yeah. insert myself. And, uh, and it just ended up going so much better than <laughs> I thought it would because people liked it and new people got into it and it... It got really great press, and in a weird way, it, it it definitely was hugely related to the book, which came out a few years later, because that's when I started, that's when I was just into writing for myself, and as I was, like, trying to get pictures from my uncle and just remembering things and talking about this record and listening to it, I was like, I should really be writing about this, because I'm into writing about things right now, and so, like, that whole chunk in the book from that era, I wrote then while i was like yeah reissuing this record but then it caused him to write a bunch of new music and we put out a new album in 2020 and he's like uh well yeah that's <laughs> a known living current artist with two albums one from 1975 and one from 2020 it's so that wild. was the the fire still burns which my friend yeah. mark masters wrote about for pitchfork oh and yeah he, mark wrote a great yeah yeah he i think he wrote i'll quote from he said as flames engulf america in many ways uh yeah, that's still happening. Uh, the title has added significance, like the 60s jazz it echoes. Uh, Broffman's music reflects turbulent times and impassioned resistance. And I was like, oh, wow, that's so good. And also, uh, listening to that record to get ready for this this talk, it was like, it was such a, a it was such a cool thing to have uh, playing while reading along with your book and all this stuff because oh, wow. it's just so he's. I, I love that 
that he he seems as fired up as ever. I mean, when you heard that that record specifically, <laughs> yeah. were you like, "Whoa, man!" Like you're you're on to something. I mean, I know you helped kind of get it going, and there was some. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I have a producer credit, which is crazy. But I was, I mean, I was in the studio and whatever had had the demos and everything. But what's so fun yeah. about that is like that's just. I mean, they recorded that live in the studio in one day. They did maybe two or three takes of each song and picked the best one. So I was there the whole time, and it was that's what was fun was like. I mean, I've been in the studio for the makings of plenty of records and bands I've been in or bands I work with, but it's never that. Like, yeah, go in, press record, play, go home. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's so yeah. cool. So you got to really, like, feel like you were actually watching a record be made instead of, like, the scientific process of separate tracks and everything. You uh, obviously have played drums for, uh, for most of your life and mm-hmm. have played in bands and... Uh, before reading the book, uh, I guess I, I certainly had read the credits of like Long Winter's stuff, but I guess I didn't quite put two and two together and realize that you were in the Long Winters. And that's. Yeah, yeah. It was towards the end. There, so there are a few different drummers, as, as in many bands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, they didn't have just one drum? I, I, yeah. <laughs> I know. Exactly. It's Spinal Tap. Yeah, but exactly. But yeah, from, I think 2005 to eight or something like that. Which is awesome. Talking about that Seattle thing, you write about how uh, at Sonic Boom, you know, you've got like Modest Mouse bubbling up, you've got Death Cab bubbling up, you've got Pager the Lion, one of my all-time favorites, probably, yeah. probably in some ways one of the most kind of important bands in terms of pointing me in directions. So, I loved that you were in 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 that like the uh, you know a, a Barsook band and all that. Right. I but I really liked reading about you know. Uh, when you were in uh, The Lemons, which is really interesting. So I don't think you get too deep into it in the book, but uh, your guys' major label record, was was it Mm -hmm. 96, Sturdy? Yeah, that sounds right. Mm -hmm. Well, so it was produced by Bill Stevenson and (laughs) Stephen Egerton. Early in the book, you write about how big the Descendants were to you. So, I mean, what what, what kind of a trip was that? I know, it's It's so funny, because I... (laughs) I mean, I'm sure you hear this, but like, I think most books have a lot more written than what makes the book. And there's definitely like, I saw Descendants for the first time when I was in high school, and I was scared to go see them. I I mean, I talked earlier about how I was into like, you know, either metal or new wave, but I wasn't really into punk. And punk was huge in Salt Lake, probably because there's a lot of kids, there's a lot of rebellion, everyone played there, Black Flag, Dead Kennedys, like, all my friends went to those shows. I wasn't super interested musically, and I was also very scared to go to those shows, as probably because of my biracial, but also just like I was like kind of a preppy kid who just I was like I'm not getting the shit kicked out of me. Yeah, <laughs> and my pretty like also preppy friend and bandmate at the time was like, you know, you need to come to this Descendants show. It's not what you think. Come, it'll be killer. And I went, and there were definitely some like whatever mohawks and studs and all that stuff, but also like all the record store nerds and lots of just like literary people like i was like oh right that's my first understood like there's lots of different ways to be punk or whatever it was like it was like oh this is actually really cool and the band just i mean they were so much better than i could have imagined they'd be they were like a machine and they would play for like 45 minutes with no breaks between songs it would be like 30 songs or whatever yeah and it was even more inspiring because stefan and carl the guitarist and bassist had gone to my high school. They became the new members of Descendants that year. And so that was another like, whoa, these guys went to East High and Salt Lake and they're in the best band in the world? Yeah, yeah. Hmm, Maybe I can somehow do that. And then it wasn't that much later when I was 23, somehow this band, this rock band I was in called The Lemons, we'd signed a deal with Mercury. Bill and Stefan were just big fans of The Lemons and had taken them on tour before and produced this album and to this day, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. The recording? Like, oh, it was so hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, playing drums with Bill, who like, and I replaced a drummer in that, and I, I love Bill, and we, we stay in touch, and I revere him and respect him, and he's one of the best people ever. But like, they, he was very into the drummer before me in the Lemons, who yeah. had a very specific style, and I didn't have that style. And so I think a lot of that recording was like, we got to make you kind of sound like the last guy. And it was so hard. We, I mean, if we listen to that record, it's on streaming services. They just sound like very simple three song or three minute rock songs, really like whatever Ramones, super simple. I played each of those 
20 or 25 times and he would like be no breaks no breaks like it was like it was yeah. like a sport it was like running a marathon it was really crazy i will say that the the drums uh particularly on that record are are pummeling it's like a very too loud <laughs> well, too loud is what i would say i, <laughs> I wasn't gonna say it i'm glad you said yeah. it i don't have to be the bad guy um probably the first time a, a, a drummer has ever said the drums are too loud on this <laughs> right. record but um but it was real i mean incredible to work with those guys and i learned so much and it was just so fun to like we spent like two weeks with them it was crazy yeah it's i mean it i i think about how how you i mean you had all you've got all these different stories like there's that the book doesn't that the book doesn't feel scattershot is a real testament to to the connective thread because you are talking you're talking about now i'm now i'm a drummer in a rock band and, and we're on tour with sugar ray you know and, <laughs> which by the way i don't know maybe it's just my age maybe it's just the the stage i'm at in my life i'm reappraising certain sugar ray songs kind of hard to deny some of what they were up to uh well, some of those hooks yep. some of those hooks are pretty uh pretty resonant um <laughs> <laughs> but like you're doing that and then you're you're writing about you know kind of uncovering this the complicated you know uh branches of your family tree you're writing about your relationship with your father you're writing about you know your biracial identity it's like you're doing a lot but i think about the how you know the the kind of connective thread being being you and being that this is all your life it doesn't end up feeling like we're bouncing around so much it really does feel like it has Thank a you. has a through line did you i mean were there a lot of revisions and 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 edits and drafts yeah it took i mean the whole thing took like i would say three and a half years from true start to true finish which is a pretty long time <laughs> and uh yeah i mean i did a lot of it on my own then had a friend kind of go through a couple of drafts with me which helped a ton and then once i did the book deal i had an editor at the publisher who you know really really dug into it and it was, that was an incredible experience, but that was like, a, that was three drafts. It wasn't that crazy in like 18 months, like basically yeah. every six months or so, but it, it was a lot of work and it was a lot of like, I mean, what's hard about that is it was a lot of like deep thinking that I, you know, you write something like this and you feel like I've done it and then someone still wants you to do something else that's hard. It's like, but I've already done all oh, this yeah. hard work, yeah, like, hey, but you uh, just kind of have to do it. And it, it, I mean, my editor was incredible and really, really made it better and did so in a way i think this is a real talent but like made me feel like there's definitely there's some major changes in it and they were her ideas or she would say you know will you try this we don't have to keep it if you don't like it that's it but just try it and some of those things stayed and i feel like they were my ideas yeah like and i think that's a real talent as an editor to be able to make somebody think you know or, <laughs> they or, thought of something yeah or a record producer you know Same or thing, or, right? or, yeah. or a label head you know if you can convince so similar. if yeah. you can convince the the yeah that i mean that is it sounds sneaky or underhanded but it's really not in a lot of ways you know it's yeah it's, it, yeah and i i mean i totally trusted and trust her i mean I, we were both trying to get to the same place which was a book that was better than the one that's started and that we're both happy with and we did did you i mean you have what i imagine is a very demanding job with with beggars did you have this is just real dorky question but i mean <laughs> did you have like a specific time of the day that you would devote to the book i mean i know scheduling is like that's crucial. I mean, did you, were, right. were there times or? Yeah, it was a lot of, I mean, my wife started a company around the same time. So that's what she would do all weekend because she also had a job and I would like hit it super hard on weekends and was like, we're both morning people. So I would do like, you know, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Yeah. And we, you can do a lot, especially the way that I was doing it because the most of the writing came from like, I'm just going to write. No one's going to see this. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. So I could, in eight hours, I could write a lot. And then yeah. later on, pick out whatever the parts that I liked and kind of throw away a ton. But it, it came it came out pretty easily and just like, yeah, long chunks on the weekends or on flights. That always was a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, not with work. I can't. I mean, my brain can't do that at the same time. It has to like only do this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and as, as, you know, it's funny because you, you talk about 4AD and, and what like, you know, what that label meant to you and write just really, really vividly about hearing the Pixies and just like, you know, playing it on your radio show every single week without fail, just over oh, yeah. and over again, you're playing the Pixies. So, so fun. 
so I mean, I wonder, like, wh- you know, what do you think if you could go back <laughs> and oh, and boy. tell your young self, like, uh, that one day you're, you're going to be presenting the Pixies with uh, was it is a gold record? Uh, <laughs> it was a platinum platinum record. record. Even better, much better. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I wonder what what <laughs> what do you think young you would have said? <laughs> I, I think this is what I, I would have said. So, I, yeah, I got to give them a platinum record for Doolittle at Madison Square Garden in 2019. So fairly recently, if I told young me that young me would have said, why am I not the person receiving the gold uh, record, the platinum record? <laughs> yeah. Why I am I that. doing the giving? Yeah. 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 Well, am, I'm not in the Pixies. What, what are mm-hmm. you talking about? Yep. <laughs> is that uh, do you have a favorite a favorite? 4AD record? I mean, I guess that's a difficult question. Oh, wow. I mean, I of the ones I've worked on, I started there in 2009, and now, I mean, now I'm at Beggars, which is right. largely the same company, but officially not 4AD anymore. Right, But like right. 13 years, I mean, I really, there's something about the kind of slightly early period. I love St. Vincent's Strange Mercy. That's mm. one of my favorite albums. Mm. Um, God, there are so much. I, I mean... I love the first Toon Yards record, Bird Brains, like really homemade one, the really kind of rough. It's just so human and so great. Um, I mean, there's a ton, but those you, are two of my favorites. You write really beautifully and, and movingly about like identifying with Meryl and sort of this like, just like being into that. Yeah, and, yeah. she's incredible. We did, I did, a, I've been doing a lot of book tour, like readings and talks and things. And we just did one with her at the Bandcamp store in Oakland a couple nights ago. And it was that's so perfect. I'm so happy that she did it. It was really great. I just wanted to thank you for your your work on Halcyon Digest by Deer Hunter, which is uh, one of my favorite. Uh, it's 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 tough because Deer Hunter has a lot of records that I really yeah. really like, and I like Bradford's solo stuff, and I like the Atlas, you know, sound at Lotus Plaza, all the stuff. I'm really into mm-hmm. it. But Halcyon Digest, there's oh yeah, that's a I mean, when, a definite point, a zeitgeist or whatever, like that's when it all sort of felt like it converged. When you when you first heard it, did you have that sense? Was it just like, yeah, this is... Yeah, I don't remember what... I remember having it in a weird order and thinking it felt weird. And then real, this was like at a time when it was like, oh yeah, the CD burner spit out the songs alphabetically. Like that kind of thing would happen sometimes. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> like weird. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so you're like, so I remember listening to it and thinking like, these songs are incredible. It feels kind of disjointed. And then getting the sequence and we're like, oh my God, this is one of the best albums I've ever heard. Would your, would your position ever require you to uh, suggest alternate sequences? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't super involved in A&R. I was more like running the label in sort of a more business sense. But but yeah, I was with certain artists I would weigh in or sometimes people would actually ask. You know, sure, but, sure. But um, but we would never, I mean, in the end, we, we would have our opinions and sometimes get in arguments, but it's always up to what the artist wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I, that's awesome. And I just, you know, like I said, the book just is really moving and it's, it's really fun to read. And um I I feel like you know the the desire to wrap it up at the end and to maybe put a bow on it uh is I think understandable but I think to close our talk out I just I guess I just it's I guess it's less of a question more of kind of just a general thought that was bouncing around in my head which is that i felt like you did something really really cool with it where you you bring it's 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 optimistic and it is it is like a it's not a it's not a bummer ending um (laughs) but it's also not a you don't go out of your way to to ease over the wrinkles that just exist in in telling a story like this and Mm. And I feel like, you know, that kind of um, maybe creative tension in a weird way is much more emotionally satisfying than if at the end you were like, and and happily ever after or whatever. But I wonder right. if to you it feels like part of the reason why you end on the sort of note you end is, is because you're not done necessarily telling the yeah. story, you know? I think that's part of it. I'm not done telling the story, and the story is not done evolving and existing. I mean, and so much has happened in the couple months since it's come out, but that's a whole other story. But 
But yeah, to your point, and, and actually this, this whole talk has been really fun because we haven't talked that much about my father, which almost every interview I've done, that's all it's about. So, I, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, throughout the book, I'm kind of trying to connect with him, failing, and I think finally just decide, like, that's not what's meant to be, and I can't kind of sit around and hope for that or wait for that, and it's not perfect, but my life has been great, and he's responsible for a lot of that, even if he doesn't call me back or doesn't show up or whatever, and... It was sort of empowering to to get to that point and yeah. to be able to decide that. Yeah, and I I part of the reason why uh, I didn't want to focus so much on that was one, all this other stuff is very interesting to me, and then two, <laughs> you you know it's it's always funny when you talk with with somebody about a piece of work like this, like a piece of art like this, where it's like I almost feel. I almost feel bad sometimes because I mean you 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 dig so deeply into it and put so much effort into it that it's like we could do bullet points and talk about the times you have hung out with your dad backstage or the you know the sort of like the 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 nice moments you've had with him the upsetting right, right. moments we could we could just go over all of that but it's like you did that. You wrote it. You you already you told the story <laughs> right. so it beautifully. <laughs> like people should go out, they should read this book and and it is ultimately while it is a book about identity and about family and about choosing the way that we you build that, you know, and 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 and, and recognize the family that you have had and and yeah. the family you yeah. do have. There's a lot of that, but it's also at the end of the day, the book is also very much just about you and your journey. And so it's like, it's, it was just, it was so much fun to engage with and such a moving piece and, um, more complicated and more, uh, in depth than, than we could get into here. But, <laughs> could um, be here for hours. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. But I loved it. And it was so much fun getting the chance to speak with you. And I really admire uh, your your career and the, and the work you've done. And uh, from, you know, one record store clerk to another, uh, <laughs> I, I loved, I love that you saw at the record store, like, a way forward, really, into right. like this incredible, incredible career and, uh, and those, those doors, um, yeah, you, you, you made your way through them and it's been, it's been really, really fun speaking with you about all this. Thank you so oh, much thanks. for taking it's the been time. Great. Yeah. I hope we, hope we meet in person sometime. Neil Ayers, author of My Life in the Sunshine. Go get your own copy. It is a fantastic read. All of our musical selections have been from Alan Brofman's Valley of Search, available from the label of the same name. Thanks so much for joining us on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. We appreciate your listen. You can support the podcast by checking out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. Your support helps us keep making the show, and we'd love it, of course, if you left a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Click the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Transmissions is a part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton, and the show is executive produced by Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. All right, rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word if you dig transmissions. Next week on the show, Ken Shipley of Numero Group. This transmission is concluded.